This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 45th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is finding oneself instead of the American dream. I'm joined by Michael Patrick F. Smith. He's the author of The Good Hand, a memoir of work, brotherhood, and transformation in an American boomtown. The publisher is Viking. Mike is a folk singer who has shared the stage with luminaries such as Ramblin' Jack Elliott. He's also a playwright whose works include Woody Guthrie Dreams and Ain't No Sin. The Good Hand is his first book. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, thanks for having me on, Dan. <clears throat> and is Mike fine, by the way? Oh, yeah, that's fine. Absolutely. Okay. Sounds good. So tell people, what's The Good Hand about? So the good hand is uh, focuses primarily on a year that I spent um, a little bit less than a year that I spent working on oil rigs in Williston, North Dakota, during an oil boom out there that um, lasted uh, in 2013. Um, the book also uh, discusses some of my my family upbringing and. Um, so it's a bit of a memoir, and there are also uh, historical sort of historical zoom outs where I dive into the history of North Dakota and uh, some certain figures who fascinated me along the way. Sure. So the first thing I have to say is this book is incredibly well written. Um, I used to be a college English professor, and you could know in the first paragraph of a student's paper probably whether you had an A, B, or C paper. I was underlining verb choices and other things from the very first page on, uh, where you say things like uh, a mud-colored scar in the land, trucks coughed diesel, cranes farted smoke, and dust turned to mud. It felt like my face was shorting out. That's all within the first page. (laughs) Whoa, this is going to be quite the book. I got to ask you, how do you get to be such a good writer? (laughs) <laughs> well, first of all, thank you. Um, you know, I've always written and I've always uh, read a whole lot. Um, I would say in some ways, writing this book was like my, uh, was like getting my doctorate in writing. You know, I spent, <laughs> I spent six years on it, seven, six, seven years. And, uh, you know, my first, I would say that when I started, I was, I was drafting stuff you know, up to 10 or 10 times, just constantly drafting and redrafting. And uh, by the final stuff that I was writing, I was I felt like I was having pretty good first and, um, and second drafts. 
Well, it, it certainly does not feel belabored, and uh, it's just wonderful. Even later in the book, I just have to cite one more thing. You said, the day smears past. Love the verb choice. The yeah. final bitter hour of strangled light. That, yeah. That's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I'm, I'm a voracious reader, and uh, I read a lot of them. Um, in some cases, you know, there's a lot of weather in the book, a lot of cold weather. And uh, I was, I'm a big Jack London fan. I was reading a lot of Jack London to, you know, find every possible way to say the word cold. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. In fact, I noticed later you talked about uh, the snow rolls and tumbles, pushed in gusts from every direction. I, I'm from Minnesota, sometimes called East Dakota. Right. So believe me, I know about cold. Mm-hmm. I imagine, yeah. And in fact, I was born in Minot, North Dakota, and both my parents are high school sweethearts from the region. And um, it, you know, North Dakota, of course, is a character, so to speak, in this book. Seamus Haney, the the Irish poet, said, "A sense of place issues in a point of view." What point of view did you adapt based on getting the experience of North Dakota? Yeah, I think that from my um, background in theater, uh, you know, sense of place or the set is always a character, you know, you want to use the doors or the couches. Um, And so that was very important to me. And in North Dakota, um, I think I benefited from coming from the East Coast, where ecologically is just such a different world. And I hadn't ever spent a great deal of time in a place like North Dakota. So being able to see it with new eyes and fresh eyes uh, was really inspiring. Um, And for me, the vastness of the landscape, the sort of uncaring sky that was hovering over um, the rolling, you know, the prairie rolling out into eternity. It just, everything seemed endless. And there's that, um, that weather that can pretty much kill you for me became, um, not a metaphor, uh, but another layer of, um, of something to explore as I was exploring the fact that, the systems around the work of oil extraction were also somewhat uncaring. The economy is uncaring. And um, some of the people that I was meeting didn't care too much about, <laughs> about me either. So it all just kind of fit together in this, uh, this puzzle piece. Well, of course, the, the Northern Plains, besides being cold, are also extremely windy. I remember once I, I characterized it as the constant wind lodges its husk in my ears because every time I'm in North Dakota, I notice that wind right away. Absolutely. It's relentless. It's relentless. <laughs> yep. Wind, ch- wind chill is not a common casual term. <laughs> no, no, sir. <laughs> so I got to move into uh, another specific here. You say it's the Williston hello. And the Williston hello essentially consisted of what kind of work do you do? And to quote you, man, my dad whipped my ass. So you talk a lot about the book, and I think it's one of the real strengths of the book, because this is not only a book about the oil boom and trying to survive every day on the job. It's also about you and your growth and a lot of commonality you developed, as indicated by the subtitle of the book, uh, with your fellow hands. Father wounds is what you called it. Can you explain what father wounds means and how that plays so instrumentally into this book? Yeah, I was really shocked when I was in Williston. Um and that 
you know, guys, often the very first things that we would talk about before anybody talked about, you know, their favorite football team or uh, talking about women, people would, uh, these guys would talk about how their dads would beat them up. And it was something that we'd joke about and talk about and kind of toss around. And it ended up, um, you know, uh, forming um, relationships with people, even in the, you know, the, the, um, short period of time in a bar or whatever, but I, I was just kind of shocked. I'm not generally that um, effusive about my own upbringing. <laughs> and uh, um, as I worked more and more on the book, um, you know, something I kept coming back to, I kept getting asked by my editor and my agent was, well, what about your dad? You know, what was going on there? And um, so I ended up really diving into the dynamics of my own father, he was uh, pretty abusive, and he grew up under um, and really, really rough circumstances himself. So, you know, this idea of the father wound is something that uh, boys and men and girls and women um, carry throughout their life. Um, it just became a powerful sort of central part of the book. Yeah, no, I, I agree. One of the uh, lines I underlined was. My old man treated the house with the respect an angry gorilla gives a cage. Yeah. That says a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> My dad was pretty tough. <laughs> he was pretty tough. Yeah, no, I, I'm not generally, generally effusive in that direction either. And I had a few experiences, which I won't go into on the air, but I do remember one time being in a bar in South Carolina. And the first thing the guy practically said to me is, my dad used to hold a shotgun to the temple of my head. And I yeah. went, okay, you just told me an awful lot. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's so much trauma. I mean, something that arises from the book uh, as I was writing it and my understanding of it is sort of how my trauma um, that I'd even really thought that I had dealt with pretty fully was still such a driving force in my life and was a lot of the reason that I ended up in North Dakota where I was and that um, that was uh, that was a, uh, you know, whether you call it PTSD, I don't want to diagnose anything, but um as shorthand, you know, sort of childhood PTSD and how that um, how that affects men and women as we move through life and kind of keep recreating these situations. Yep. I think what's the line in some uh, English poet's poem? Uh, man piss passes on misery to man. It deepens like the coastal shelf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so fear, this is a, a podcast, at least nominally about uh, emotional intelligence. And I think you actually exhibit a great deal of it in the book. And part of that is awareness of what one is feeling. So among all the emotions, it seems to me that of those primary emotions, fear is the one that gets invoked and addressed most often. Is that a mm. fair summation? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting to hear you say that. Um, I, uh, was somewhat, um, uh, yeah, I felt very aware that part of what I was doing when I, besides just trying to make some money in the oil field, um, was, <laughs> we'll come back uh, to that. Yeah, yeah, I was, uh, really aware of the idea of, I, for me, I kind of framed it as running at my fears and sort of running right at the things that I was scared of and, um, seeing if there was a way to, to, to bust through to the other side. Um, I think that, you know, fear is a very powerful uh, map in a lot of ways. It, it points you a direction. 
um, either you want to run away from it <laughs> or you want to, you want to, um, kind of crash take, into it. You want to yeah. crash into it. And my book is very much about crashing right into it. So, um, it became, um, but yeah, but that's, it's funny because that when I started the book, that was sort of central to it. And then I've kind of haven't really uh, considered that in some time to tell you the truth. Yeah. Well, I think if someone tells you what they're afraid of, you, you're on your path to knowing somebody. Right. And uh, a lot of times people don't know that and you might be able to surmise it <laughs> from right. a sideways glance, but um, <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. Um, so you're not the only character in this book, of course, and there's some pretty fascinating portraits, uh, you know, from the wildebeest on. Um, but I want to start with one comment you made about, I guess I'll call it the gang you were hanging out with. You said, I always have had a great admiration for scoundrels. <laughs> Why? And what does that tell us about you? <laughs> well, <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't know if that makes me a scoundrel myself, but there's uh, there's always something funny about people who are a little sideways and people who uh, do things a little bit differently, whether inside or outside the law. Um and I guess I've just sort of found myself around some figures like that. It's, um, and, uh, you know, there's, I mean, the word scoundrel, I think is great because it's playful. It's not uh, yes, completely yes. malevolent, you know, but I, I've enjoyed in the past getting away with some things. <laughs> yeah. No, if you, if you said, I have a great admiration for assassins, we might have to have a different conversation. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So um, your nickname, and by the way, I only picked it up on page 317. So that doesn't mean it wasn't there earlier. But the first time I actually noticed that you were being referenced as Magic Mike comes most of the way through the book. So I'm curious both about did I miss it earlier or did it kind of evolve as a name once you were a good hand? or And, and what does that name mean or what did it mean from the people who gave you that name? Yeah, it 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 doesn't show up till pretty late. Um, so it really wasn't until I was accepted by the guys I was working with and um, had started doing a good job. I think it initially came from the uh, just the fact that there's a movie about male strippers. Uh, that, ah, okay. That were going on, and they thought that that was pretty funny. Um, but then, um, you know, it started to mean a lot to me. It's real fun to be called magic. And uh, I think in some ways I was a little bit of uh, of an oddball to these guys. But uh, once we got to know each other, um, they appreciated my sense of humor and um, sort of the comedy maybe that I was uh, adding to the situation. And, and they called me magic as a real term of affection. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think a lot of people working in, you know, in the oil patch uh, have read Bertolt Brecht necessarily and uh, right, right. so on and so forth. Or, or as you said, you know, you might have been the only Democrat you came across for nine months. Yeah, <laughs> I was about the size of a leprechaun to these dudes, too. So they, okay. <laughs> that, might have given, that might have tipped them off as well. So the one you might have, the I mean, the, the wildebeest is the one that kind of uh, – didn't break you, although he tried, but uh, the one who maybe schooled you the most. But Huck is the one you're closest to. Uh, being a literature guy, of course, I think of Huck Finn. Was Huck what he went by? Is Huck what you assigned him as a name? And what are we to make of you as a, a later J Jim hanging out with Huck? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I, um, you know, I did change the names of people in the book. Uh, there's a lot of illegal activity, and a lot of people didn't necessarily want to be 
um, identified. And so just about all the names, with the exception of my family members, have been uh, switched. Um, And Huck is actually the only literary reference I kind of allowed myself in the book. To me, he was... He just, as a person, kind of exemplified this uh, open, uh, open-faced kind of American, you know, innocence and optimism that also had sort of a dark undercurrent. You know, Huck Finn is a pretty rough book, really. Yeah. Yeah. Lighting out for the territories and for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about social class for a bit here because uh you know i went ahead and referenced in the title for the episode the american dream and uh you talk about poverty being a habit uh you're in a flop house as the first place you can stay because everything's so hideously expensive out there Mm -hmm. uh you make a comparison between wilson williston and new york city of all places but it seems obvious once you make it which you said it's about job status and money and both places are obsessed with it can you talk to me about the role of social class as it plays into this book. Yeah, this book is um focuses on lower castes, you know, lower uh people who are lower down the totem pole. Um I feel like there's a lot written about the macro side of oil and about the politics and these sort of vast economic forces and um there's very little that I've come across that um you know deals with the lives of poor people. And um, I very much uh, wanted to focus on that as, you know, not in an altruistic way. I was broke. You know, I, <laughs> I, yeah. grew, up, I grew up without any money and um, I've spent most of my life with, without any money. So I just have um, there's something uh, that poverty does to people um, that's brutal and that um, I think you know, by focusing on the truth about these folks, um, as well as the dignity that I think people show in these incredibly uh, rough circumstances. That's kind of what I was trying to do. But also, the you know, the other problem with a lot of writing about poor people is that it's sort of, uh, or the way that, pe- that poor people are, well, poor people aren't even talked about in politics. So, the, you know, there's yeah. that. The middle class is talked about people who live in poverty are generally completely ignored. Um, But I think that, um, or sort of despised for their political beliefs or some of the, uh, the darker aspects of, um, of their belief systems. So I, but I thought I could show, you know, show some of the dark stuff and also um, write about these people with dignity, not, you know, just because I, I, I see it there, you know, yeah, no, you know, or they get treated with polite condescension. I mean, this might be the right. moment where I'd mentioned uh, uh, I was in the oil business, so to speak, but not really. I uh, I had a grandfather who ran gas stations and mine it, and then he came mm-hmm. out of retirement and opened a gas station for truckers on the south side on Route 2. And okay. uh, I spent some summers as a gas monkey filling up the rigs. <laughs> yeah, okay. And, uh, you know, he came from a poor background. Uh, certainly he used to blast lignite coal out of the side of a coulee Mm. uh, down southeast of Minot uh, in Great Depression. actually lived in a a tar paper shack. Actually, it wasn't even that. It was a chicken coop with uh, five kids, including my mom and, uh, you know, my grandparents. So it was was a tough go. And uh, in my case, the uh, exposure to sex and to racism was the graffiti in the bathroom at that 
truck stop. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I'm just saying that by way in part that this book rang true. And yeah. uh, I don't think there is condescension there. There is dignity, but awareness that uh, people are struggling. And you say at one point, and I'm wondering about your comments on this, you said, money scares the hell out of me. What might you say to that? <laughs> well, um, yeah, you know, my father's upbringing sounds a little bit similar to yours. He was, my dad was was older when I was born, but he was born in the Great Depression and lived in Appalachia. He spent a couple of years in an orphanage and um, <clears throat> later became a boxer and then joined the uh, military as a combat veteran, served in Korea. And, uh you know, he was obsessed like any good God-fearing American. He was in love with money and just didn't know <laughs> what, <laughs> what to do with it or how to get it. And uh, I think that, um, you know, uh, for me, I yeah, it, it's just uh, it's I think learning how, you know, knowing how to responsible responsibly handle money is learned. Um, it's not something that's intuitive for most people. And yet I think we're treated as if it is intuitive. So it took a lot of digging through my own brain to kind of come to terms with the fact that I'm just like, you know, I'm not a math guy and, uh, I've just never, you know, I'm, I, I was a part, I think that comes at a part of the book where I'm trying, I'm really like determined to make a bunch of money. And I'm just realizing that even if I get it, I won't even know what to do with it. Well, and in fact, if I'm not mistaken in the book, you end up with, you know, your high point for income isn't all that high, uh, in part because uh, the rent is so expensive and you don't usually have a kitchen. So you're paying for every meal out. Yeah. I mean, the whole system of the boomtown is set up to fleece you. It's yeah. just that's just the way it, it's just the way that they operate, which makes them a lot um, like the broader economy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, there there would be similarities there. <laughs> um, just to go to a different angle here, at one point you say rather intriguingly, "I lived near a town near called Damascus as a kid. Uh, I believe it was a location where the scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he became Paul the Apostle." And then you say. That story has always held, had a profound effect on me. And for the only time in the book, maybe I put a big question mark, say, okay, I don't think I know the answer. And good news is I get to talk to the author, so I'll find out. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, yeah, I was raised Catholic and uh, we went to church in Damascus. And it made me think as a kid that I was sort of in the middle of the Bible, you know. And that's. <laughs> But I think that story has an effect on me. Uh, you know, the subtitle of the book mentions transformation. And yes, it does. Um, I kind of keep coming back to that theme, whether it's Teddy Roosevelt transforming himself into a rough rider or uh, the folk singer Ramblin' Jack Elliott transforming himself from a Brooklyn-raised son of a surgeon into an actual cowboy, um, or whether it's the transformation of of oil into all the things that we use in modern life and whether it's my own personal transformation. So I think the story of Saul, that, that story is sort of just, um, you know, something that kind of repeats itself in a, in a subtext throughout the uh, entire book. Sure. No, I, I, that word transformation got my eye. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm hugely interested in it. If people aren't making a journey, um, you know, I'm a little less interested in them as, as William Blake said, still waters breed pestilence. <laughs> so I, I like things that are moving on. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's my own restless nature. Yeah. 
So I got to ask you now, as we, as we got about 10 minutes left, maybe a little bit less, uh, I got to move to another angle of the book that, yeah, we talked a lot about guys, but we need to talk about women. And this is a book, I don't know how else to say it, and I don't want to come across as a prude, but there's there's not a lot of lovemaking in terms of how it's described, but there's a lot of sex. And it's not, it's usually using the F word. <laughs> <laughs> what does that tell us about uh, gender relations uh, out in Williston and the Bakken and uh, about that world that uh, you were inhabiting for nine months and maybe the world you grew up in for that matter? Um, yeah, you know, the, the oil boom basically, um, you know, it caused an influx of men to come into this town who are looking for work. And, and there was, uh, just very few women who were actually in the town. Um, most of the guys who had families had come from other places and they were sending money home to their families. It was a scary place for women. There were, um, you know, uh, there was just a lot of cases of assault. Guys I knew when their wives went to Walmart or whatever, they'd get hit on and harassed by, you know, by these workers, these numbskulls. Um, and so there just wasn't in that situation much of any kind of a uh, chance to have a sweet relationship with a with a woman. And I, you know, I talk about it a bit in the book. There's some some uh, uh, some women who worked at a coffee shop I would go and visit. And I just realized I had I had really nothing to offer them um, because I wasn't planning on staying in that town and, and building a life. Um, and um, and putting some really long hours. Yeah. And also, right. When you're working 14 hours a day and you just never, you know, it's very hard to kind of even make plans to take in a movie or something. Um so, you know, I mean, I think I, I, I grew up I was surrounded by a pretty, um, you know, misogynist culture and uh, sort of misogynist um, family. And, you know, in the book, I, I would have loved to have had, um, you know, more of a woman's voice in the book and more of a uh, presence. But, um, you know, the reality was I just, I just didn't meet them. I was, there was a, a woman I was dating in New York before I moved to the Bakken. Um, and I found it just really hard to allow myself to, to uh, talk on the phone with her and kind of open myself up emotionally um, and allow that softness, that soft side of myself to exist when the next day I had to get up and work in the oil field. Um, it's, sure. Well, I also happen to be uh, very uh, characteristic of North Dakota, part German and half Norwegian American. And those aren't necessarily cultures that are particularly effusive. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Pretty reticent, I would say. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I've been to Sturgis, but Sturgis only lasts, lasts a week. And there, the proportion of men to women is also, you know, hideously um, out of balance. But anyway. Right. Um, so something else really struck me about the book about 50 pages before I finished it. I went, you know, this book's going to end with his mom. I just said it, it, it should, and it could. And, and now I need to know whether it will. And it, and it did. So, yeah, we're going on about father wound. And I think that's hugely central to this book, but you've got a mom as well. And, and why, in your own words, why did this book indeed come around to ending with your mom? Um, Great question. Um, it was, it came to me pretty late. Um, uh, 
in the writing process, but um, I would say partly because of how masculine the book is, I guess, or, you know, for me, sort of with what I was going through um, and, and what I was getting out of this experience you know what it awakened me in me really is a uh, a desire to return in some ways to the feminine and in a lot of ways uh one way to view this book is me kind of working out um uh an ability to see myself as a creative co- collaborative sort of um person you know and these kind of like um if that makes, I don't know if I don't feel like I'm being as articulate as I could be, but you know, this, it, and, and what I'm trying to reconcile within myself in the book, it's kind of, I'm kind of the whole time for whatever reason throughout my life, it's been hard for me to see myself as an artist, which is what I am. I'm a writer. I'm an artist. I love music. I, uh, I value collaboration. I value, um, cohesion and peacemaking, um, and these were things that I think that I've felt sometimes maybe made me deficient or made me less of a man. And um, however, in the weirdest way, uh, diving into this incredibly rough masculine culture uh, has given me permission in a lot of ways to uh, feel like I can open myself up to that and that I can speak with greater sensitivity about, um, you know, about my journey and about my life and about the world as I see it. And I think that it's something that's missing from, um, from a lot of our culture. And so it was important to me to end the book with my mom, who's, you know, a beautiful woman and who has also sort of, uh, gone through her own journey. Um, and, uh, and is another powerful example of transformation in the book and uh, to spend it at the end, you know, uh, looking at flowers with her, you know, <laughs> so um, and 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 eventually at the it, it's pretty subtle, but at the end of the book is is me really taking her advice. Yeah, no, it's a uh, it's a journey from yeah. The first page is talking about the scars on the land, and the last page is about the scars internalized and trying to get to healing. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's that's no small part of the movement there, and maybe right. maybe in fact almost all of it. I'm also intrigued just at the end. I mean, and I mean truly at the end of this book, uh, we come across two really important things, and they actually both involve connecting to the feminine, because um, you you bring in your brother in L.A. and so on and so forth. But suddenly it's your sister Shannon's death, which you call the birth of my solitude. And then, and just as painful, uh, your sister Kate molested by your father. Um, and I have to tell you, just like you said earlier, you know, that some way some of the editors and people working with you said, we got to tease out you talking about this father wound. Mm-hmm. I went, whoa, there, there's another wound here beyond beyond the father wound. And I'm not trying to belabor it. I think the Canadian therapist you were seeing, Sandy, apparently did a good job, but I said to myself at the end when I finished this book, you know, there, there's there's almost like another book laden in the last ten pages of this book. Right. Yeah. You know. I mean, I I I sort of bring up those um, those factors, I guess, throughout the book, and at the end is when um, I mean, I think a, a powerful aspect of of uh, 
the book or one thread that runs through it is is the feeling of shame and sort of trying to deal with shame, which I think is tied yep. up into the idea of me having a hard time seeing myself as a creative and sensitive man. Um, and so it is a little bit, you know, like dropping a bomb at the end of the book. Uh, but <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I also, I guess, you know, I came across some, 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 uh, it was actually from, uh, Sebastian Younger book, um, this uh, study that indicated that soldiers who had PTSD were almost always people who as children had been sexually or physically abused. And uh, so the yeah. issue with the PTSD, the issue with combat is that it basically reawakened these scars in them. And that's uh, absolutely what had happened to me Um at what I thought was the end of the journey, you know, I, <laughs> I thought uh, I ended up calling the last chapter the beginning because it really is just like, you know, I mean, uh, part of me, you know, I'd love to have a drive off into the sunset ending, but I realized, <laughs> I just realized it would be dishonest. And um, yeah. my yeah. experience had really re-traumatized me, but it had broken me open in a way that allowed me to, uh, really for the first time in my life, really deal with some of this stuff. And um, I got to say to my sisters, uh, my sisters and my brothers uh, were both incredibly supportive of everything that I wrote. And um, I sent them drafts of stuff and we talked about uh, each other's memories and all that has been an incredibly uh, healing process in my, my relationships with them. Okay. Well, I have to tell you that, you know, this is, and for the listeners, this is a, uh, courageous and beautifully written book. I mean, if, if you read a lot of books in a year, this still will be one of the best three books you read in the year. I can promise you that it, it's that good. Uh, so magic Mike, I think is probably a good acronym for, <laughs> for uh, how I describe you. So we've uh, basically run out of time. I want to thank you for, for being my guest. Uh, this has been episode number 45 of Dan Hill's EQ spotlight. Uh, the topic, Finding Oneself Instead of the American Dream, my guest, Mike Smith, the author of The Good Hand, a memoir of work, brotherhood, and transformation in an American boomtown. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Uh, you can check out other episodes on my company's website at the three W's, sensorylogic.com, or you can go to the New Books Network where the series appears under its special series list. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In this case, I'm going to pick up on one from CBS newsman Eric Severide, who happened to be born in the same small town as my mom, which is Velva, North Dakota, uh, a bit east of Minot. And he said, better to trust the man who is frequently in error than the one who is never in doubt. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. 